This is JAMDA on the go. Your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jammed On The Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Jammed On The Go. This podcast will spotlight articles from the March 2021 issue of Jamda, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. We'll be talking about non-traditional small house nursing homes, a delirium associated with non-cardiac surgery, challenges in long-term care for older adults who've been released from prison, and how much a resident really eats and how we should be monitoring that. We'll be speaking again with JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. In addition, we have a guest respondent for this episode of JAMDA On The Go, Dr. Jacqueline Portelli-Tremont. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director for the Program on Aging, Disability, and Long-Term Care at the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Director of the Residency Training Program. And Dr. Portelli-Tremont is a postdoctoral research fellow in general surgery at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, Drs. Brown, Sloan, and Portelli-Tremont. Thank you. Thank you. We're glad to be here with you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Dr. Brown, let's start with you. You know, I can't help but think just around a time of my fellowship, uh, the Pioneer Network was talking about ways in which to uh, uh, augment nursing home care, trying to make it as person-centered as possible. Later, around 2001, this topic of greenhouses, a way to modify nursing home care back in a residential environment, um, was introduced uh, through the Greenhouse Project and later won a $10 million grant from Robert Woods Johnson. And interestingly, the first greenhouse was in Tupelo, Mississippi. And as part of the March 2021 issue of JAMDA On The Go, we're talking about greenhouses again. Tell us about the the article in this issue. Sure, that's an interesting um, backstory and a little bit of history. Um, I'll give just a bit more. Greenhouse and other small nursing home models are considered this non-traditional model due to their size, averaging at 10 to 12 beds per freestanding unit. Use of universal worker caregivers, and a home-like appearance and a home-like features. This model has been attractive and interesting in considering the potential benefit, particularly around limiting COVID-19 infections. Fewer people living, working, visiting, and being admitted clearly limits the spread of infection, as does the private rooming model and individual bathrooms. So if this small home model proves advantageous compared with other nursing homes, Extending the model could constitute an especially promising approach as policymakers and providers reinvent nursing homes post-COVID. This cohort study of 43 of 57 organizations, including a total of 219 greenhouse homes, 
all of which have a skilled nursing license and are certified for both Medicaid and Medicare, compared the rates of COVID-19 infections, COVID-19 admissions and readmissions, and COVID-19 mortality between the small house nursing homes with other nursing homes. The dates studied were between January of 2020 and late July of 2020. Comparison nursing homes, referred to as traditional homes, were the comparison or the control group. COVID-19 incident rates per 1,000 resident days were calculated for COVID-19 cases and admissions, and mortality was calculated per 100 COVID-19 positive cases. The study found that the rates of all outcomes were significantly lower in greenhouse small nursing homes than in the traditional nursing home. This study provides support that greenhouse nursing home model is advantageous in relation to COVID-19, including reduced hospital readmissions and Medicare spending. Other studies have identified improved resident quality of life, satisfaction, and quality indicators. This is therefore a promising model as nursing home reform efforts truly begin in the um, post-pandemic world. You know, I can't help but think this is a model that's been around for 20 years, and we really have not been talking about it that much. Um, does it have a play in nursing home reform? Well, most people think it does, Wayne. Um, and the question is, you know, it's not resolved. Is it more expensive? If so, how much more expensive? You know, how replicable is it? Um, does it have certain selection criteria that make it more difficult um, to, to extend it to the masses? There's a lot of questions about it, but there's no doubt that it feels good to be in one of these homes. Hmm. I can't help but think that, uh, that with JAMDA bringing it more to the forefront again, that perhaps this might be something we'll be talking about uh, in annual conferences and maybe uh, state meetings moving forward. Um, very interesting stuff. Um, so, Dr. Sloan, I'm going to turn to you for for our next discussion, and also Dr. Portelli Tremont. Um, I am thrilled that we have uh, a paper talking about surgery in in older adults, even though we're talking about the the um, the issue around delirium, which has been a, a well discussed topic. But the American College of Surgery has really come a long way uh, in being a leader in looking at uh, perioperative effects in older adults and looking at palliative care. Um, you know, tell me about what uh, this paper is talking about with regard to non-cardiac surgery and delirium. Well, Wayne, this study is a meta-analysis of 49 high-quality studies of preoperative and postoperative delirium. The purpose was to identify the overall or pooled incidence of delirium and to look for major risk factors from these studies. The paper reported three key findings. The first finding is that the pooled incidence of preoperative delirium is 23%. Hmm. The postoperative delirium is 24%. Now the study actually estimated the average or pooled incidence using two different statistical techniques, the fixed effects model and the random effects model. And I had to get up to speed to understand what they were. The difference, because the differences were actually measurable and significant. Hmm. The difference between the two is that the fixed effects model assumes that there is one true effect size that underlies all studies. 
whereas the random effects model assumes that the true effect may differ from study to study. So the results I presented, 23% incidence pre-op, 24% incidence post-op, is from the random effects model because it makes sense to me that the true incidence of delirium will differ depending on the study population, type mm -hmm. of surgery, and other selection factors that the meta-analysis may not be able to control for. So that was their first finding, which is really surprising to me because I never expected the, the rates to be so similar. We'll talk about this in a minute. The second finding was that the incidence of perioperative delirium has increased by 30% from 1996 to 2018. Now, this is different from cardiac surgery where the incidence of delirium has been falling. The third main finding is that there were two big predictors of the incidence of delirium. The first was baseline cognitive status of the patient, which is not surprising, of course, right. for our audience, as more impairment associated with more delirium. Um, the other was, of course, the type of anesthesia, with general anesthesia associated with a 40% higher risk of delirium compared to local spinal or epidural. So let's discuss these findings, and here to help us is Dr. Jacqueline Portelli-Tremont, a general surgeon and research fellow here at UNC as well as Drs. Brown and Saltzman. My first question is about preoperative delirium. I was surprised that the rate was so high, essentially equal to the post-op rate. Why do you think this is? So that is a great question. And I think overall, these data really speak to a newer understanding, especially in surgery, that there's predisposing factors to the outcomes that we're seeing in our patients. You know, in other words, many of the risk factors for post-operative delirium are likely already present when the patient arrives in the pre-op holding area. And as we alluded to before, the American College of Surgeons or ACS has really outlined several critical risk factors for post-operative delirium, especially in recent years, such as cognitive impairment, depression, age, polypharmacy, which we know is all too common in our older adults, comorbidities, immobility, poor nutrition, I could go on. Hmm. All of these factors really pre-exist prior to surgery. The other piece that I think is very important to consider is there's a relatively small number of studies that were actually included in the preoperative delirium analysis. So when we look at these results compared to post-op delirium, the, where the authors were able to really do a subgroup analysis by type of surgery, this wasn't possible with pre-op delirium. So, you know, overall, most of the pre-op delirium studies involved really hip fracture or orthopedic surgery, which we know to be associated with a high risk of delirium. Right. Overall though, you know, I really think these results, again, you know, highlight the need for pre-op optimization in this population. Dr. Portella Truman, I have a, I have a question. When I was in training as a medical student, the anesthesiologist would say, uh, you know, we decide on the anesthesia that we need to use for each surgery. Nobody decides for us. And of course, that, that makes sense. But just as the American College of Surgeons is recognizing that uh, older adults come in different flavors, as you have so nicely discussed, are anesthesiologists also recognizing this in your experience thus far? You know, I really think that's true. And, and 
you alluded to it a little bit as well, but I think the other shift that we're starting to see, at least in the surgery world, is anesthesia and surgery are really talking to each other perhaps more than they were a few decades ago, Hmm. meaning, you know, there's a conversation before almost every surgery about, you know, what can we do to decrease the amount of time in the operating room as much as possible, as safe as possible, um, how much fluid we should give a patient, what medications we can use and type of anesthesia, which we saw in this study was also important with delirium Hmm. is really a, a normal common conversation that surgeons and anesthesiologists are having these days. Hmm. Great. Well, um, my next question is about the 30% rise in delirium incidence over the past 30 years. Um, do you think this is just because we are more sensitive to recognizing and diagnosing delirium or may, maybe there are other factors at play, such as willingness to operate on more frail patients or persons with dementia or more polypharmacy? What do you think? You know, the answer to this is probably it depends, right? You know, it's likely a combination of both of of those factors. You know, again, we're seeing this, you know, what I think is a relatively newer trend in surgery of recognizing delirium as a trackable post-operative complication, similar to how we track cauties, for example, or, or pressure ulcers. There's Interestingly, an ongoing American College of Surgeons geriatric study that's now capturing delirium and other outcome-related variables in older adults so that we can better predict uh, risk of adverse outcomes. So I think in the next few years, we'll start seeing the results of these, these studies come out. And you know, speaking to the other part of that, as surgical options evolve, like our minimally invasive techniques, mm laparoscopy, et cetera. And as we talked about advances in anesthesia, we can start really during the the pre-op evaluation to develop um, evidence-based pathways and really optimize care for these patients. So with that, you know, surgeons really do have the ability to operate on a sicker population, including more people with pre-op issues like delirium. Are you finding that more, uh, residents uh, are being trained, uh, more surgical residents are being uh, trained to identify delirium? Uh, you know, are they, is, is like the cognitive assessment method part of standing orders post-op? Uh, are nurses recognizing it more? How, what's the current atmosphere today with regard to the ability to, um, to assess and recognize? Yeah, that is, that is a great question. I would say, you know, at at least at UNC, we have formalized ICU measures of delirium that the residents are trained in, like CAM ICU, for example. Um, When it comes to other surgical floors, typically formal delirium measurements are, you know, reliant on nurses, but at the same time, I, I would say even starting in medical school, you know, we've started to be trained to look for signs of delirium, like you mentioned. So, you know, to sum that up, I think the more formal measures are either in the ICU setting or with nursing, but more of those qualitative assessments of delirium are definitely trending for the resident and medical student level. That's great. Great. Well, I have one other question and that's about you know, what can we do to reduce this perioperative delirium? What are realistic steps that, you know, can be built into a geriatric practice um, to reduce the incidence of delirium around, you know, patients that um, need surgery? 
So this is clearly an important question. You know, first off, it's clear that surgery in older people in general with multiple medical problems, like long-term care residents, really need multidisciplinary care. And that the preoperative optimization of the patients is really critical to maximizing their postoperative outcomes. Especially when we're talking about elective surgery, a thorough history is important to understand our modifiable risk factors. You know, it, it seems straightforward, but in an era where the electronic record can really get cluttered with all of that automatic text generation and patient notes, hmm. the surgical team or anesthesia can easily miss important information like alcohol use or frailty, mobility issues pre-op. So with that, when time allows, surgical risk, including our risk of delirium, can really be lowered by interventions like vitamin supplementation, pre-op inspiratory muscle training, pre-op physical therapy, cardiac evaluations when appropriate, or, you know, same thing when appropriate medication reduction. And then on the flip side of that, postoperatively, we know that pain control is important. Early mobilization is important. Removing devices from patients like the urinary catheter quickly and efficiently and minimizing those psychoactive medications can really have a positive effect. Um, and I know I've mentioned the American College of Surgeons a few times now, but if anyone is interested in learning more about um, their geriatric surgery verification program and some of the other tools and information that the, the college offers um, the surgery world, um, I urge you to go to their website. It really has some great resources on optimizing uh, perioperative care for older adults. Fantastic information. You know, I was thinking uh, as you were uh, talking, Dr. Portelli Tremont, about, you know, the co-management services between geriatrics and like orthopedic surgery that have been created all, all around the country. But, you know, Drs. Brown or Sloan, could you imagine having this conversation, this such an illuminating conversation about, about managing older adults and delirium perioperatively with, with surgeons? Well, it is happening more and more, and yeah. this is a, there's been a lot of effort to cross-educate. And so, um, in fact, I should mention that we are going to be putting out very soon a call for papers for surgery, anesthesia, perioperative um, papers, so that JAMDA hopefully will have a issue that features this. That's wonderful. And I remember the national conference a number of years ago uh, had some surgeons presenting. I would love, love to see that come back again uh, mm -hmm. as well. Really a, a wonderful article. Thank you so much, Dr. Patelli Tremont. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. A 
At US Post Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Our next paper is fascinating, just <laughs> fascinating. Um, and during the COVID-19 outbreak, we heard about many disparities. And one of the greater disparities we heard about was the impact on um, individuals who were incarcerated, um, group living, uh, that types of things. But now we have uh, JAMDA in the March 2021 issue um, talking about uh, this population, this unique population of, uh, of adults, even older adults, uh, and the impact on incarceration or post-incarceration and uh, post-acute care. Dr. Brown, tell us about this fascinating article. Absolutely. This narrative review really piqued my interest and it didn't disappoint. Um, I was really proud of the journal to put this work in and to, to really add this to um, what we have here to review today. So um, skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes, assisted living, adult foster homes, and even the informal care from family and friends, all, we all know, have challenges in terms of access, service delivery, and um, certainly payment. Older adults who enter into our communities from prison and need these services are uniquely vulnerable. They can face stigma and access challenges at baseline um, that the general population do not encounter, which compounds the issues that affect the general population. The article starts by laying out some cold hard facts that I just want to recap here. So the fastest growing segment of the incarcerated population is older adults, many of whom are living with multiple chronic medical and cognitive challenges. In 2018, 3% of all incarcerated persons in federal and state prisons were 65 and older, and 10% were 55 and older. The number of adults 55 and older in state and federal prisons increased by 280% from 1999 to 2016. Wow. Interestingly, I hadn't stopped to think about this before, but prison accelerates aging such that the prison population develops chronic illness 10 to 15 years earlier than, the community, than their community counterparts potentially related to a history of substance abuse, mental health issues, and poor primary care, all of which might have occurred prior to incarceration, then additionally, potentially the stress of incarceration. For these reasons, an incarcerated person can be considered an older adult, quote, end quote, by the age of 55. Wow. More than 600,000 individuals are released from state and federal prison each year and more than 60,000 of them are aged 50 or older. Inmates often have their necessary medications stopped once out of the care of the prison system. Research shows that re-entry planning for older incarcerated persons is sparse, and the outlook is grim given that many are released to urban communities characterized by health disparities and inadequate healthcare resources. Take this a step further. COVID-19 has hit the prisons hard. Infection control is a challenge in prison settings due to the confined space and restricted movement, compounded by often suboptimal medical care provision. Older inmates and persons with multiple chronic illnesses are at particular risk of death or complications from COVID-19. 
the incarcerated population is disproportionately made up of ethnic and racial minorities and individuals of low socioeconomic status. These are the same populations that are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Early release programs have been considered and in many cases implemented to help in keeping inmates and individuals safe. Phil, I understand you published an editorial in JAMDA last summer saying that prisons, nursing homes, and cruise ships are in many ways similar. I think we might have reviewed that here. Would you care to comment on these issues relative to the prison population? Well, just really briefly, you know, I spent a number of stints as a ship doctor and um, spent much of my time worrying about infection control. You know, one time we had, you know, something like 300 people coughing in the auditorium at the same time because the biobronchitis went around. And um, as COVID unrolled, you know, we saw it start out in cruise ships and then again up to nurse, nursing homes. And now it's still going around in prisons because there are settings where you have a lot of people living in close quarters and you we get them together for big group meals and, you know, group activities. And um, it's a very difficult situation in which to do infection control. I have to tell you, I am still reeling from Dr. Brown's statement that um, prison accelerates aging such that the prison population develops chronic illness 10 to 15 years earlier than community counterparts. Wow. Talk about disparity in care. Uh, mm-hmm. I am really hoping that there is a, an ongoing focus on this on this population, the details here are just uh, incredible. Um, Dr. Brown, tell us some more about uh, the post in cart. Pause. Dr. Brown, tell us more about this post incarceration issue that's described in this paper from the March 2021 issue of JAMDA. Sure. Um, this is the more potentially hopeful part of the article. I think. Um, the authors go on through and go through each long-term care solution with some individual ideas on how prisoners transitioning into the community might be better served. Medicaid is the primary coverage plan for older adults transitioning out of prisons, particularly those 55-year-old older adults. This makes nursing homes the most likely setting to be accessed by folks post-incarceration who have disabling medical, cognitive, and or functional problems as they transit into the community. Indeed, nursing homes may effectively be the only long-term care solution option available for individuals individuals newly released from incarceration. Each state varies on whether or not Medicaid will cover a stay in an assisted living facility. Out-of-pocket expense for assisted living will likely be difficult for many formerly incarcerated individuals, as one might imagine. Hmm. Home care services and informal care is also an option, but this is often somewhat disjointed through community workers, case managers, and acquaintances, and complicated that long-term prisoners are often estranged from family. A combination of public and private partnerships, utilization of health professional trainees, and unique approaches to informal caregiver support could improve the chances of successful transition and may offer a higher quality of life for these underserved and stigmatized individuals. It's a really challenging issue. I really appreciate how JAMDA is taking on tougher topics and looking at more disparities in care 
hopefully this is able to start um, a, a bigger conversation around this particular topic. As I'm listening to you reflect on the article, Dr. Brown, I am, I am taken at how we will be able to mitigate this disparity, much, much like we have thoughts and considerations on how we can um, mitigate disparities um, in people of color or the Latino, Latinx populations. Um, uh, how do we, how do we mitigate disparities in, in, in this population? Where can we start? Um, my only thought, and Mallory, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Um, at least, you know, if in a clinical setting you run across somebody and realize that they're recently um, emerged from prison, recognize that they probably don't understand the system, the system is not likely working for them, and we should think about doing what we can to help plug them in hmm. to services. Hmm. No, I completely agree. I think that this is a starting place to have an article like this published in this journal so that this is on the radar um, more explicitly than it might have been otherwise for many of our listeners. There are um, FIT programs where formerly incarcerated folks can be seen and helped with that transition, but unfortunately that's not everyone as they transition out. And so to Phil's point, I think just being intentional about the care that we provide um, to people in the outpatient setting or in the hospital setting, wherever that might be, um, to help them to be plugged in and to get the support that they need is important. Everyone has their own story and we need to meet them where they are. Well, powerful, very, very powerful. So Dr. Sloan, I turn to you for the last article we are going to discuss and it has to do with eating. And I have to tell you, there has always seemed to be somewhat of a gap in how we record accurately how much folks or how well folks are eating in the nursing home setting. So tell us about this, uh, about this last article or two. Well, thank you, Wayne. Now, this is really a companion of two articles that are about plate diagrams. And so the first thing we need to do is talk about what they are. And it's really quite simple. You know, it's used very often in nursing homes. You know, what happens is a meal is served in a round plate, or whatever shape, but usually round, with the various parts of meal distributed around the plate. And this is the way nursing home meals are typically served. And then when the resident is done eating, the person making the estimate mentally divides the plate into four quadrants, estimating the proportion of food that's been missing or that's left in each quadrant and then comes up with a summary percentage. So these were two studies that looked at two different methods of assessing how much had been eaten. Both studies compared estimates from staff with the actual change based on weighing the plate before and after this person had eaten. The first study was a controlled research study and it found no meaningful difference between the staff estimates and the results of the plate weighing. However, the second study, which was done in a more typical nursing home setting, found that nursing home staff overestimated by about 34% how much the resident had eaten. Yeah, I'm still taking Dr. Sloan with the fact that one of the papers is titled The Validity of Plate Diagrams and the other paper is titled The Failure of Plate Diagrams. I just think that itself is, uh, is interesting. But, but why would there have been such different, different results? Well, really, the answer is quite simple. 
In order for staff to estimate accurately the proportion of food eaten, they had to formally evaluate the amount of food offered at the beginning of the meal. It seems logical, but of course, that's not what generally happens in a busy nursing home. <laughs> what have we learned from these papers? Well, this is one of the issues between, you know, a randomized trial that is done by the researchers and a more pragmatic study in which the actual work is being done by staff. Fascinating. Just fascinating. Wow. What a great session of Jamda on the go with um, four or five uh, really unique articles. Um, under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association, as we have seen today, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. Take a look at the March 2021 issue. Dr. Sloan, Brown, and Portelli Tremont, thank you for spending your time once again with Jamda on the go. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. Thank you. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Jamda On The Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.